Welcome to the Restoration Living Podcast with our host, military chaplain and spiritual care director, James Johnson. With so many voices in this world fighting for our attention, it's easy to believe that we aren't good enough, that our past will always haunt us, and that we will never measure up. But the voice of God is telling us that we can live a life of restoration in Him. Our Heavenly Father doesn't want us to let our past decisions determine our present peace. Instead, He wants us to find that life of restoration in Him. So grab your Bibles and join us as we dig into God's Word to discover timeless truths and proper application for our lives today. Hello and welcome back to the Restoration Living Podcast, and we are continuing our series on the book of Revelation, and I truly hope that as we have gone through these 14 chapters so far, that this has really helped to open your eyes, that it has helped to grow your faith, and it has helped to get rid of so much of the fear and anxiety that has been perpetually pushed on our society over the last century. And I know that this is not anything new to people who have misunderstood or misinterpreted the book of Revelation, but the thing that really gets me is just how much this has been used to drive people into the kingdom out of a result of fear. That, like Jonathan Edwards doing his famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, that, you know, God is pictured as this monstrous spider who is just, you know, coming to get all of the sinners and destroy them, you know, and it's just, that is not the heart of God. The heart of God is to do what is necessary to bring his family back home. That's why Jesus told the parable of the prodigal son, hoping that. God's children, like the son in the parable, would come to their senses and come home, back to God's best for them. And God is telling John so that he can tell the people to get ready for this judgment, not because God wants people to be destroyed, because God wants justice, God wants health, God wants restoration. Dr. Tim Jennings does an amazing job of explaining this mindset that we have missed because of the place and the culture the early church developed in. You see, the Roman mindset of the the Roman Empire, because it ruled all of the known world for so long, and because the United States of America imported so many ideas from the Romans as they built our republic, and I love our nation, but over the centuries, the church fathers all the way until today have incorporated a Roman legislative mentality when it comes to the judgment of God. And Dr. Jennings does a great job explaining that this is a misunderstanding of God's love, God's mercy, and God's justice. That a better way to look at that is not of a judge in a courtroom behind this judgment seat where lawyers bring evidence forward. Instead, he said it's a more accurate picture to look at God as a physician. We call God the great physician, right? That when I go to a physician, he or she makes a judgment. They look at the evidence of my symptoms and my blood work and my you know, body and mind and all of the state that I'm in health-wise, and they make a judgment. 
about my situation and they give a prognosis on how to fix it. And that's exactly what God wants to do in our lives. He declares where there are areas of unhealth and he wants to bring remedy to that. And sadly, sometimes our health is in such a bad state that the remedy is painful and the remedy can feel destructive. Think about a person who is dying of gangrene and has to have a limb amputated. Well, would you rather them keep the limb and die or lose the limb and live? That's the idea here that the the judgment God is bringing is like that of a physician who wants to bring life, even if the consequence of it is the, the cost of that life is painful procedures to bring health and healing. So as we've looked at this whole book so far, we are in Revelation chapter 14 is where we left off last time, that as we've gone through this, I really pray it has helped you to open your eyes and your heart to not see God in a fearful way as a judge behind a judgment seat. And yes, that that is going to come in a little bit when we get to the chapters where it talks about God's judgment. But I want you to see the idea of judgment from a different perspective that is all out of love and compassion and mercy and grace. It's not like human justice that longs for violence and torture to bring peace and restoration. God knows that his law of love and his law of liberty have to be put into place in order for the universe to thrive, and he is making way for that to come back again. So as we read through Revelation 14, last time we left off, we looked at how the end of this second portion of the trumpets, we found that there are three sets of seven in the middle. There are seven seals, seven trumpets, and seven bowls. And all of these are judgments that bring health and restoration back to the world and get rid of the disease of sin that has been perpetuated in this context by the Roman emperor who is being manipulated by the, the dragon, which we know is Satan. That we've seen this second beast that has one came from the sea that was the previous incarnation of the Roman Empire and the new beast that has come on the land that represents the now the Roman Empire under the Caesars who are now being worshipped as gods and the religion of the Roman Empire is shifting away from focusing on the pagan gods like Zeus right and 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 Poseidon or I guess Neptune would be the would be the the Roman version of it over to the emperor and we talked about how that under Nero and the succeeding emperors who came after him worship of the emperor as a god in his lifetime now becomes the norm and God shows us in verses 3 through 5 that there are those who died for the faith and kept their testimony and they are now allowed to worship God they are taught a new song and we see now that there's a another angel that comes to the sky that says that now there's going to be a time where God brings judgment on the earth and he tells them to worship God who made the heavens the earth the sea and the springs of water and what we see is that during this time all of these martyrs would begin to come onto the scene and under Nero it would really ramp up that Nero brought the Neronian persecution which like we've talked about before was not continually intense for three centuries it came in waves there were waves of persecution in certain areas but make no doubt that as we talked about before 
the apostles, man, they were put to death, every single one of them, except for John. And we've talked about this before, but James, the brother of John, was beheaded in 44 AD. James, the son of Alphaeus, was stoned to death in 62 AD. Simon, was, you know, Peter, was, was crucified, and Jude was beheaded in 65 AD. Um, another, um, another, not Simon Peter, I'm sorry, the, uh, that was the other Simon. Simon Peter was crucified in Rome in 66 AD. Andrew was crucified in Patras in 69 AD. Thomas was speared to death in India in 72 AD. Philip was crucified in Hierapolis in 80 AD. Matthew was stabbed in Ethiopia and Bartholomew was skinned and beheaded. So John knew the cost of following Jesus all of his brothers in the faith that they had started out together as the 12 all of them are now dead except for him and so we know that in less than 200 years things would change but during this 200 years man there would be a lot of persecution and we've seen that now as a result of this god is saying hey because you kept the faith you're given a white robe and now you have a new song that you can worship only you get this privilege as the martyrs. And now we see that the beginning of the fall of Rome is going to start happening. And we talked about this in our last episode that in verse 8, the angel came and said, Babylon is now fallen. The great city is fallen because she made all the nations of the world drink the wine of her passionate immorality. That Babylon is the symbol for Rome, that Rome has kept God's people in captivity the way the Babylonians did centuries before. And so now we're seeing that God's wrath is coming on those who worshiped the beast, his image, and who took the beast's number and mark, right? That this we talked about is, is a mark on the head and the hands, and this is the worship that was done by sprinkling the incense in order to be part of society, to go into the marketplace, to to buy and sell and trade to be part of society and, and be accepted and promoted and live life of comf- lives of comfort. And we begin to see all of this, um, you know, this, this idea of now God is going to start separating people. And Jesus talked about this. The separation of the sheep and the goats is now starting to happen because there are people who are faithful followers of Jesus and there are those who are followers of this world. And we close by talking about how last time in verses 12 and 13 by saying that persecution was going to happen. Before, Christians had been able to, to kind of hide by being connected to the Jews because Christianity came out of Judaism, that the original followers of Jesus were Jews. But as the faith developed, the Jews began to separate themselves from the Christians and kick them out of the synagogues. And they were forced to meet in homes and in cemeteries and in catacombs because the Jews wanted to protect and preserve their lives, and the Romans were still, by and large, giving them a free pass. But the Christians were new, and so they did not get that same free pass that came to the Jews. And eventually the Jews would receive persecution as well, as we saw talking about these trumpet judgments. What do the trumpet judgments do? They're doing the opposite of what the law of Moses promised, that, that now, because Israel has forsaken God, and has practiced idolatry and has been adulterous in their worship, God, in the first set of seven seals, took away the land. That was the land deed of Israel, and the land was taken from them. Now we're seeing the trumpets being used to take away their unity 
and now they are being scattered into what is known as the diaspora. And what we see as we close chapter 14, that it says this in verse 17, After that another angel came from the temple in heaven, and he also had a sharp sickle. Then another angel, who had power to destroy with fire, came from the altar. He shouted to the angel with the sharp sickle, Swing your sickle now to gather the cluster of grapes from the vines of the earth, for they are ripe for judgment. And as we see this metaphor of gathering grapes, that you would take a sickle, and you would take it to the vineyard and you would use this curved blade to cut off the clusters of grapes and protect the grapevine that the curved blade allowed the harvesters to pull the grapevines away cut the grape clusters off and protect the plant then the grapes would be collected and taken to the wine press and the wine press was always outside of the city so that people could, you know, gather them together and press them and create the wine, put it into wineskins and allow it to ferment and preserve. And as we see in verse 19, it says, So the angel swung his sickle over the earth and loaded the grapes into the great winepress of God's wrath. The grapes were trampled in the winepress outside the city, and the blood the blood flowed from the winepress in a stream about 180 miles long and as high as a horse's bridle. Now, once again, we find numerology in this metaphor. This is a metaphor of saying that the judgment of God is going to be like the harvest of grapes that are turned into wine. There's a gathering, then there is a destroying in order to get the wine. And so this is what we see, that there's a gathering of the people, and then there's the destruction. We see this in the destruction of the city of Jerusalem. And as we continue reading, it says... That the blood flowed in a stream 180 miles long and as high as a horse's bridle. What do these numbers mean? Well, 180 miles and as deep as a horse's bridle. A horse's bridle would be approximately four feet. That's what this measurement would be, about four feet. And so in 180 miles, this is an updated translation. The original wording is 1,600 stadia, which is how they measured it. We have translated it into miles so that we can wrap our brain around it because we don't measure in horse bridles and we don't measure in stadia. But 1600 connects us to the number four. It is four times four, which is done in Jewish numerology when you multiply a number by itself, it exponentially increases its intensity and it is multiplied then by a hundred. So four times four is 16 combined with 10 times 10 for 100 means this is the massive amount. Four is the number in Jewish numerology. Four is the number of completion of God's will, and 10 is the number of testimony. So we see this exponential amount of God's will being completed and testimony growing and developing. 2,000 years later, we still talk about the martyrs of the faith that happened during this time that promoted the spread of Christianity because the Romans just could not understand why these Christians would die for their faith. If their God truly was who they said he was, he should be giving them victory, not defeat, but but in their death, they showed their fervor, they showed their willingness to do whatever it takes to be true and loyal to Jesus. As we wrap up chapter 14, we see this great judgment, and the judgment on the city of Jerusalem was so bad. There was blood everywhere running in the streets from those who, after they broke down the walls and killed 
According to some historians, up to a million people when Jerusalem's walls were breached and they made it into the city, the Roman army led by the general Titus, who would be a future emperor one day of Rome, they massacred everyone in order to put down this rebellion. And the blood flowed through the streets and it would have felt like a river going from God's mountain. And it would have looked like the blood was so deep it would be wading through it in order to make it through the city. And so that's what we see in the closing of the trumpets that God is now going to spread his people. The Jews now are being spread out to make way for the church who will now be true Israel. The previous covenant was with Israel. The new covenant is with the world. So as we move out of chapter 14 into 15, this is what's going on. Chapter 15, starting in verse 1. Then I, and John's talking about what he sees, then I saw in heaven another marvelous event of great significance. Seven angels were holding the seven last plagues, which would bring God's wrath to completion. Now, some translations call these vials, but these are bowls. These are the tools that are used in the temple for worship. You see, whenever an animal was slaughtered, the ram or the bull or the lamb would be put on the altar and then the person would have to put their hand on the head pull the head of that animal back and please forgive my, my the gruesomeness of this they would have to take a knife and they would have to slit that animal's throat and they would have to push the blood out of the body and the blood would pour out of their throats and the priests would collect that blood in bowls. You see, God's commandment was that no meat should be eaten with blood in it. And so this was a very serious and very thorough process to get all of the blood out. And then as the animal was cooked on the fire of the altar, the priests would pour out the blood that was taken from the sacrifice. It would be poured out as an offering to God. And the smoke that would come off of that burning blood would rise to the heavens. And God would receive that as an atonement. And so these seven bowls represent the third part of the covenant that was under Moses. Moses' covenant, the Mosaic covenant that God made with the people of Israel through Moses, had three parts. The first part was the land. We've talked about that. The second part was unity. We talked about that. The third part that is now coming is the sacrificial system. God gave Israel, the nation of Israel, a sacrificial system and a process of procedures in that they could offer sacrifices to be made right with God again. You see, God's law of love says that everything that lives gives. When they stop giving, they stop living. And so, and because God is a giver, and because there has to be an atonement and a sacrifice that deserves death, that's this, the death of the animal replaced the death that the human being should have had. And, and in that case, they would give the animal to reinstitute the process and cycle of love, which would then give forgiveness back to them. And so, John understands and is using this symbology to show that the sacrificial system that they have practiced for thousands of years is now going to be done away with. To go ahead and give you the bottom line up front, when the city of Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 AD, the temple was also destroyed. 
ever since that happened in 70 AD, there has not been a Jewish temple on the mountain in Jerusalem and Mount Moriah. There is no longer a Jewish temple there. Now there's a Muslim mosque. The, the Crusades tried to take that back, but they never have rebuilt the temple. And a lot of people are waiting for what they believe to be Ezekiel's temple to be rebuilt. And I'm just going to put the cookies on the bottom shelf for you. And even though I got in trouble for it in uh, seminary when I was doing my in graduate school working on my Master of Divinity degree, that I believe that the scripture shows that God's desire for Israel when they returned back from captivity to the Babylonians and Persians was to build Ezekiel's temple. Ezekiel was given the floor plan and the layout and the blueprint. But the Israelites who returned were selfish and greedy and they used all of the luxurious materials that the Persian kings of Darius and Cyrus had sent to rebuild the temple and they used it to rebuild their homes so they could live in nice fancy homes and mansions and they neglected God's temple and so when Nehemiah and Ezra show up and say what's going on why is there no temple he had to use whatever they had left because the good stuff had been used up and so there's no need for another temple because there's no need for a sacrificial system if they do let's just say let's say that Israel runs out the, the people protecting and fighting over the Temple Mount. They destroy the Al-Aqsa Mosque that is sitting on the Temple Mount right now. And let's say that they build the Temple back. Who's going to run it? The only people that can offer the sacrifices are priests from the line of Aaron. There is no genealogy available for anyone to say, look, I'm a descendant of the line of Aaron. I'm from the tribe of Levi. I have the right to serve in the temple and to be a priest. There are no genealogies. That's why there can never be another king of Israel. Because we have no idea who the descendants of David are anymore. You see, that's another compelling reason why the Messiah had to have already come, or else he would never come. And Jesus fulfills all of this. There's no longer a need for a temple. There's no longer a need for a sacrificial system because Jesus is that perfect sacrifice. Jesus paid the perfect price for us and made a way for us to be reunited with God again. And so as this happens, the temple is going to be destroyed and the sacrificial system is going to go away with it. And just as God has taken away the old and replaced it with something better, instead of one nation and one land of territory, now God has the whole world. Instead of the Jews being united as one people, now the church is God's people. We are now part of God's family again. And now, there's no need for a sacrificial system because Jesus was that perfect sacrifice. Let's see how God's going to do that with these bold judgments. In verse 15, or chapter 15, starting in verse 2. I saw before me what seemed to be a glass sea mixed with fire. And on it stood all the people who had been victorious over the beast and his statue and the number representing his name. They were all holding harps that God had given them, and they were singing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. Great and marvelous are your works, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear you, Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous deeds have been revealed. 
You see, John's vision now is back into the throne room of God, where the 24 elders who are now God's divine counsel, the four living beings who represent the guardian cherubim in front of the throne of God, and they are worshiping him night and day. And now the faithful, the martyrs, and this is where Jesus is turning the opposite back. God loves to take the foolish things of this world to show his wisdom. In the eyes of the Romans, that the, the strong conquer and the weak are defeated. That the followers of Jesus who were being martyred and were dying, they were the weak ones. And so they did not respect their God. But Jesus in, in, is showing John that now actually those who kept true to the faith and were killed are actually the ones who defeated the beast. They're actually the ones who were victorious. And so now it's not just the Israelites, now it's every single Christian, Jew and Gentile alike, and they're singing the song of Moses that the Israelites sang when they came out of captivity. Now that the human beings are coming out of captivity to sin, it's not just the Egyptians. <laughs> now that they're coming out of captivity from sin, they're singing the same song again, and they're adding to it. It's not just the song of Moses. Now it's also the song of the Lamb. Now, as you read through this book, it's pretty interesting to see how many songs there are. Depending on how you break the songs up, there are between 7 and 27 different songs found in this book. And as we look at this man, it's such a beautiful throwback to the song of Moses as God brought them out of their captivity to the Egyptians. Both the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb contain similarities. The first similarity is that both songs talk about plagues of judgment. To, to the second thing is that it talks about a sea of glass. The third commonality is the theme of divine deliverance. The fourth connection is a song of deliverance. The fifth connection is they sing a song by a sea. The Israelites sang this song by the Red Sea, and the martyrs that are now victorious in heaven are singing it by the Crystal Sea in front of God's throne. There's fire in the sea. As the Israelites passed through the Red Sea when it was divided, God's fire led them, and there's fire in the sea. Now what do we see in the Crystal Sea around God's throne? There's fire in it. And then, since the Song of Moses was traditional worship in the synagogues at the time John wrote this, John's readers would have easily made this connection to the throne room of God where worship is happening, for there to be a song of worship to him. This is a parallel. We call this paneling when we look at the, the, the scriptures, where two similar events happen that mirror each other and, and have a different are connected even though they're different points in time they have a connection and so just as God led Israel out of Egypt and through the Red Sea and yes they were persecuted and yes they were chased and yes the Egyptians killed them as slaves as they were set free they were able to worship God and say now that time is over the Egyptians can no longer put us to death we are victorious now this same parallel is happening in heaven in front of the throne of God, where now those who are victorious are surrounded not by the Red Sea, but by God's Crystal Sea, and that they are worshiping that now they will no longer be put to death, they will live forever. And so this paneling, this paralleling of these passages happens. And look at verse 5, it says, Then I saw, looked and saw that the temple in heaven, God's tabernacle, was thrown wide open. 
Why does that matter? Because the temple on earth was always closed. It, the people were cut off from God's presence. Because of sin, they were now separated from God. The tabernacle and the temple were meant to model Eden. And just as sin had pushed humanity away and separated us from God, we experienced spiritual death when we sinned because we are now separated from our connection to God. Now, in the temple, you could come in and you could get closer. And you went the direction of Eden, but only the high priest could go all the way into God's presence. Now, though, in God's temple in heaven, the doors are thrown wide open. You don't have to be a special person anymore to have only one individual come into God's presence. Now, the doors are open and anybody can go into God's presence. But what happens to the angels who were holding back the seven plagues? They come out of the temple, verse 6 says. They were clothed in spotless white linen with gold sashes across their chest. That means these people, these are high ranking. They have royalty. They have authority. Just as Jesus had a gold sash that marked his authority, they have a gold sash. Verse 7, Then one of the four living beings handed each of the seven angels a gold bowl filled with the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. Now, as we get ready to close up this time together, we see that God is about to bring judgment on the, his, this land, the people of Israel and the people of Rome. And now the sacrificial system is going to be destroyed. And we'll see that as we go through, as we look at these bowl offerings that represent the blood that would be poured out for the sacrifices. Now we see that this is going to contain God, not blood, but judgment. Verse 8, the temple was filled with smoke from God's glory and power. No one could enter the temple until the seven angels had completed pouring out the seven plagues. As we finish up chapter 15, what do we need to recognize? First, we need to recognize that God is in control. He hasn't lost it. On earth, it's easy to look at all the chaos. It looked like the enemy was winning. All these Christians were dying for the faith. Where is their strong and powerful God to save them and rescue them? But because they stayed true to the faith, they were given victory through the Lamb, through their death. They were given a white robe that symbolizes the Holy Spirit sanctifying them, a new song to worship God. And now God is going to pour out his wrath on Israel and on Rome to destroy the sacrificial system and make way for a better one, a perfect one, where we can now come to God. We don't have to go through a high priest. We have a high priest in Jesus. So to close this time, I hope that helps you make more sense of this. And next time we'll pick up with chapter 16. Be blessed. Thank you for joining us for this episode. We pray that God uses it to inform your mind, improve your life, and ignite your heart with a renewed passion to impact others for the kingdom of God. And be sure to subscribe to this podcast so that you can continue along with us on this journey of restoration living.